The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, creatives, comedy, cuisine, marketing. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And it turns out that black and brown communities sure like Black History Month and sure like Cinco de Mayo, but also like Christmas and also like Independence Day and also like all the same stuff as everybody else. And so by 2040, it's predicted that people of color will make up over half of the U.S. population. So for agencies to not represent the country that we serve is not just harmful to society, it's just also really bad business. In the era of disappearing newspapers and magazines and the decline of linear television, what does it even mean to be an advertising agency? How would you build an agency from scratch for the era of omni-media, influencer marketing, and social reckoning? Omid Farhang has a few ideas. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Enjoy full disclosure on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ News, Virginia's NPR news station. You can get in touch to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Joining me from Atlanta is advertising industry wunderkind Omid Farhang. He's founder and CEO of Majority, Ad Week Breakthrough Agency of the Year. He's also been named an Ad Age Newcomer Agency of the Year. He's a partner with Shaquille O'Neal. He opened this diversity-led agency, Majority, with, you know, you're a creative vet. You've been in the business for a long time at Crispin Porter and Boguski. You dropped out of ad school. God bless you. How are you doing, sir? It is an honor to be with you, Robin, a fellow... Persian wannabe wonderkind, wunderkind. As I'd say, wouldn't be a party without a Sephardi. Uh, sir, Omid, tell me, uh, advertising, right? You, you, you're a college person. You went to the University of Arizona, and it sounds really appealing when they come to you and they're pitching you on these creative campaigns. And I don't know if you came of age during Mad Men or something like that. There's something decidedly very sexy and creative and appealing. It's at a nexus of kind of corporate and creativity, and maybe you can make money and go out on expense account lunches. But so much of that, at least since the time that you've become a professional, has been disrupted by Google and online and influencer marketing. And I just I read last week that the last agency on Madison Avenue has officially left Madison Avenue. Yeah, that would be uh, TBWA Shy Day. Wow. It has been several decades of disruption. If you think about print advertising, linear television and everything. So you picked a pretty inopportune time to launch a quote-unquote ad agency, was it, in the year 2021? Well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, if your priority is day drinking then uh, and, and wearing uh, overpriced suits, then you're right. I mean, I, I really screwed this up. But thankfully for me, um, I was born of a slightly different era. And, you know, growing up, I didn't really realize this was a profession. Um, maybe you can relate to this, but as the son of Iranian immigrants, and most immigrant stories uh, kind of replicate this. I was taught that there are three professions. You could either be a doctor, a lawyer, or a loser. So, you know, I wasn't great at uh, math and science. Uh, my track was going to be the law. 
And around uh, my early 20s, I became sort of introduced to advertising sort of at the tail end of the era that you describe. But what, you know, sort of the, the corporate glut and inefficiency and um, expense accounts, that was making way for a new kind of advertising that um, interested me and felt like it was at the intersection of creativity and business that kind of spoke to my DNA and um, trying to figure out how to create ideas that land in culture, that are disruptive, that make the press want to write about the idea, that make people want to talk about and share the idea. And so um, what attracted me to the business in the early 2000s, I think, remains the priority, at least for the agencies that, that I admire most. So first unpack for me what the traditional business model was. And I'm not going to Don Draper and Mad Men and whatnot, but let's say take me to the salad days before TV or print or anything else was disrupted when newspapers and magazines were thick. What would a Procter & Gamble or Unilever or Kraft do? They would get an agency of record, like they would they would partner with one place that would cover them in terms of print, TV, radio, uh, media relations. How would it work? Yeah, I just think there were so many different, uh, there were so many less ways to connect with a customer. I sort of hate the word customer or consumer, but there were so many less ways to figure out how a brand could sort of infuse itself into a person's life in some meaningful way that felt maybe more substantive than how we would describe 99% of advertising, which is ostensibly litter. And so I think, you know, sort of the previous era, the 20th century model, it was founded on good faith, which is a brand is telling me something. And I can believe this brand because they seem trustworthy. And so if this brand tells me it tastes great and is less filling or has less preservatives or this cigarette filter is healthier for my lungs, I can pretty much take that at face value. And I think, you know, as we started to move into the new century and as, you know, with the proliferation of the Internet, I think you saw, you know, an, an even heightened sort of skepticism and cynicism that was warranted around advertising, which forced creative agencies to start to think about ways to connect with people that was again, more meaningful than traditional disruptive advertising that really kind of marks the 20th century. So, you know, where you had one agency that was responsible for your print campaign and your television and out-of-home campaign, now you have, you know, a variety of agencies that specialize in creating branded messages in a variety of ways, laddering all the way up to branded entertainment, which when done well, isn't competing with other advertising, but is competing with your favorite shows, your, you know, your favorite films and your favorite music. So hold that thought. Again, we're going back to this time when linear TV was very healthy. Must-see TV Thursdays, I guess, peaked in the late 90s with Seinfeld. Uh, people were still listening for radio spots. I remember I went to the magazine industry at the turn of the century, where business magazines, at least like Fortune, Fast Company, Inc., Forbes, all of them, they were like phone books. They were thick, and it was almost like the tail wagging the dog. You had so many ads that you needed editorial. It was one great last hurrah before Google and Craigslist and everybody disrupted that digitally to say nothing else of Facebook and all the other social media players that came. So back in the day, you would have commensurate overhead with all of these things, right? If there were big Fortune 500 companies throwing around massive multi-million dollar commitments to, to, to get one of these Madison Avenue agencies as agency on record, full service, soup to nuts, I mean, talk to us about that era. You surely must have read about it. You know, I'm as, I know about it from reading the books of David Ogilvy and watching Mad Men, which actually seems like a pretty accurate reflection. And when I look at that era, when I read about that era, you know, obviously I'm not from it, so I don't 
I don't look back at it with any nostalgia or fondness. I mean, the word that comes to mind as I reflect on it is really sort of glut and inefficiency. Yeah. And and again, it was great work if you could get it, but a, a lot of wasted dollars. And Well, which brings to mind the famous quote that you must hear about night and day in the ad industry is half my advertising spend is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. It's been attributed either to the U.S. retailer John Wanamaker or U.K. industrialist. And that seems to be the problem that persists until we had tracking and things that digitally you could say with Google or, or with AdSense or the double-click technologies. The time you came of age, search the internet really truly crossed paths and disrupted Madison Avenue. Yeah, and precision marketing, which you know um, it, it is insidious in its own way and is an enemy of creativity in its own way. But I think it's a misconception to look back at the previous era of advertising and believe that it lacked creativity. I think as you look at the work going back to Howard Gossage in San Francisco, certainly the the Titans, David Ogilvy, um, and all of these sort of famous names from which you know that, that inspired Mad Men. You know, I think it's funny. You can go back and look at a a one show annual, which is kind of the one of the main award shows in our industry, and go back and just open one from the early '90s or the late or mid '80s. And you'll actually see that, um, you know, nothing is new and that there are ideas that are sort of being presented as original today that are just kind of 2023 variations of ideas that were landing in culture through more traditional media in the mid and late 80s. Did you have anything to do with that dancing chicken in Burger King? The dancing chicken was one of the ads that got my attention about what advertising could be and intrigued me about breaking my parents' heart. Uh, <laughs> not going to law school and uh, and choosing this path instead. And and the dancing chicken, we sort of look back at it. It certainly looked back on as as rudimentary and and simplistic. But remember, well, tell us, tell us, remind us what it was. I was an intern at the New York Times when it was big. But it was a Burger King campaign where you could go online. It was before mobile on a desktop browser and tell the chicken to do various things. That's right. So it was a campaign for Burger King. It was done by Crispin Porter Bogusky. Uh, I believe uh, this was about four years before I started at the agency. It was one of the the ideas they created that that made Crispin Porter really a disruptor in the industry and got the attention of creatives like myself uh, as the only place we wanted to work. And the way it worked was, uh, it was called subservient chicken. It was a man in a chicken suit. Uh, he was on, right. he was on what appeared to be, um, a surveillance camera. And what you would do is you would go on your browser on subservientchicken.com and you would type any instruction. So you could say, put your hand on your head. You could say, touch yourself in this place or that. You could say, do a funny dance. Any of thousands of inputs, uh, and the chicken would seemingly respond. Now behind that, the, the people who would eventually hire me, were essentially creating spreadsheets that had responses for anything someone could type in. But this was really the first kind of magic trick of interactivity that would define the next, you know, 15, 20 years of advertising to come. So what about your personal experience, Omid, in in going to ad school? You finished a four-year college program and you went to ad school in Miami, my hometown. Yeah, I you know, I when I interview people and they tell me they studied advertising in college or marketing in college, I actually get kind of bummed out because I think, at least for creatives and strategists, it's usually the thing that you were interested in before you knew that this was a profession that will serve you well. For me, it was political science and 
psychology and just being sort of a general student of pop culture. And, and so those are the things that kind of differentiated me as I kind of followed my interests in agencies. But as I think about advertising school then and now, I, I, I equate it less to a graduate school program than to a trade school, you know, and, and, and so I see. and so you're almost, you know, you're learning how to put a book together. And the book is the thing that you will use. It's a book. The book is essentially a collection of fake ads. And that book is what you'll use to get a job, at which point you'll take the book you worked so hard on for two years at advertising school and you'll throw it in the trash can. We're talking to Omid Farhang. He is the CEO and founder of Majority, which was Adweek's 2022 Breakthrough Agency of the Year. Tell us about that experience. I mean, you put in your chops both at, at CAA and Crispin Porter and Boguski, working in, I guess, the traditional industry, working in, I wouldn't call it, you know, entertainment representation and thought leadership. You founded majority during the pandemic in 2021. What was the opportunity and what was the backstory? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is I never had an ambition to start a company. Um, I worked at large agencies and holding company agencies and uh, they treated me well. And those jobs, you know, it's great work if you can get it. They pay well and they book all your flights and the snack room is always well stocked. But for me, I was grappling with what a lot of my colleagues um, and peers in the industry were grappling with. And in 2020, in the wake of the death of George Floyd, which is, you know, as agencies, we're really good at talking a big game about disruption. We try to sell disruption to our clients. Just in this interview, I probably used the word disruption five times. It's one of our favorite sure. words, you know. But when it comes to disrupting our own industry as it relates to representation in our, in our industry, boy, the marketing industry has sucked at disruption for over a century. And so what you've seen is over the course of several decades, the typical agency in America is roughly 20 to 25% people of color. And that number has remained stagnant. And after the events of 2020, what you saw from the largest agencies, the holding company agencies with staffs, staffs of several thousand is lots of playbooks and lots of panels and lots of task forces. And playbooks, panels, and task forces are great, but that's what you have to do when you have several thousand employees and you're not meaningfully changing that 25% people of color number, you know, within a decade. And that's if you're really committed to doing it. And so for us, I observed not just an opportunity, but a necessity that the current system is in this necessary, but very slow state of reform. Here is a chance for new companies to emerge that can help accelerate the rate of change by doing what the, the status quo has failed to do, which is to build diversity as a foundational pillar from the start rather than trying to fix this thing that's been broken for 100 years. And so uh, that was really the premise of majority, it's, which is what if we created a company that looked like a multicultural agency, but behaved like an award-winning general market agency? What was the big reveal or what was the moment? A lot of people had this crystallization, obviously, in the, in the unrest and the ferment of 2020 and George Floyd. But I say for, for to, talking to people in industry, for example, they saw that this is random, but that the stat came out last year, Hispanics make up nearly 20% of the U.S. population, and the group accounted for 51% of all new population growth. And if you put that, you know, in terms of buying power, $2.5 trillion, that is a cold-eyed calculation. I mean, you want to move into that market. It's a, it's a growth market. It's a developing market within the United States. Yeah, it, it is the funniest thing is that for 100 years, if your agency is predominantly middle-aged male white, you're called quote-unquote general market advertising, and that you're sort of relegated to this niche called multicultural marketing. And what that is is mm -hmm. code for what is our execution for Black History Month? 
What is our execution for Cinco de Mayo? And it turns out that black and brown communities sure like Black History Month and sure like Cinco de Mayo, but also like Christmas and also like Independence Day and also like all the same stuff as everybody else. And so, you know, I'll I'll add to your statistics. By 2040, it's predicted that people of color will make up over half of the U.S. population. Today in America, whites under the age of 18 are already in the minority. And so for agencies to not represent the country that we serve is not just harmful to society. It's just also really bad business. I mean, what I mean, what about recruiting at the college level? Are you necessary? I mean, you must be casting a wider net that I'm not looking for people who were marketing majors or MBAs necessarily. I'm looking for people who were maybe athletes or creatives, philosophy majors in terms of making the industry less monolithic. You know, used to be overwhelmingly white marketing majors, PR majors, business studies majors. Uh, there were people in graphic arts that would, you know, come up the creative end, the copywriting role. Again, how do you how do you control for recruiting? It must be one of the most difficult things. And I hear the same lament with people on Wall Street who want to see a change there, or people within journalism who say we want to get outside of the Ivy League white, you know, editor in chief of the newspaper archetype. Yeah, I think as we reckon with systemic racism in industry we start to learn that its insidiousness is actually in its subtlety on this individual level, deciding and determining who is and isn't qualified, who is and isn't worthy. And I think one of the the great um, failures of the past three years, since we've seen all of these companies and agencies make this commitment to diversity, is attempting to use the same criteria to generate a different result. For a majority, one thing we realized is Yes, there's an opportunity to recruit out of colleges, but it's also about recruiting out of colleges, and we're doing that in partnership with HBCUs. But the other part of it is looking at the creatives of color who are in our industry today and looking deeper than the typical criteria, which is where did you go to school? Um, What was your advertising school experience? You know, how heralded was the first agency that you worked at? Most important of all, what does your book look like? What we've found in Atlanta where you know, Atlanta is one of the few cities in America where the minority is the majority. And there is a huge black population that is fueling the film, television and music industry, Hmm. which is to say that Atlanta culture is one of the greatest drivers of pop culture. And pop culture is one of America's greatest global exports and renewable resources. And so for us, the observation was, why is it that what's happening in our own backyard of Atlanta across these other categories of culture, not so much happening on the advertising side. And so as I would interview creatives and look at their books and say, man, your book is largely made up of Starbucks banners and the things that we would sort of categorize in the 99% of litter that is most advertising. And then you, but you push a little bit deeper and say, what do you like to do when you're not at work? Oh, well, the first creative we hired when he's not at work making banners, he goes home He records all his own music, shoots all his own music videos, edits all of it, Mm. and distributes all of it. Well, boy, in an industry that's claiming to try to create work that lands in culture, those skills should be transferable. You should be able to bring your whole self and your whole talent base to work. And so that has been the premise of our company is because, you know, if you're working at an agency where, you know, those skills aren't really being promoted and really, you know, being invited, you're taught to kind of have the ambition beat out of you. It's not particularly helpful to want to win can lions and some of the other, you know, kind of esteemed awards in our industry, when most of your day is spent kind of filling an order to make things that are going to disrupt people's day that they're going to actively try to avoid. And so with our company, we're trying to create this environment where we're creating disruptive work 
that lands in culture, that wins awards, that people are proud to make, proud to share with their friends and family. And we want to do that by using diversity, not just to create a more equitable world, but to actually weaponize diversity as a competitive advantage to create more interesting work that is differentiated from what you'll find in most of our industry. Give me an example of one campaign that really weaponized that, that used it to its strategic advantage. You know, our, our very first campaign was for the dating app BLK, which is the number one dating app for black singles. And BLK came to us and said, this was right when the Biden administration was stepping in. The COVID vaccine was being made widely available for the first time. Before the COVID right. vaccine became politicized, you'll recall for a, a couple month period of time, it was sort of considered this national triumph. And um, what the data was saying was, uh, while the, the rates of vaccine are high, it's lagging with young people generally and young black people specifically. And the black community is justifiably dubious of vaccines for reasons that go back to Tuskegee. And so there's of course, you know, a lot of right? sensitivity there. But their brief to us was, how does BLK, this dating app, speak to the efficacy of vaccines? To which we said, you're asking the wrong question. It's not the role of a dating app to, to speak to efficacy, but the meaningful role that you could play in this cultural conversation is to simply point out that after we've all been cooped up for a year and a half, and now that we're getting out and we're dating and we're hugging and we're kissing and we're hooking up and we're doing all the fun stuff that comes with you know dating in your 20s, dating is actually more fun when you're vaccinated and you're not thinking about coughing and sneezing and being sick. And so we bring this insight that dating is more fun when you're vaccinated to life through a campaign called Vax That Thing Up. We partnered with Juvenile and Manny Fresh. We took the classic hip-hop album, Back That Thing Up, and we turned it into this highly unlikely uh, COVID vaccine PSA that just talked about the vaccine in a completely different way than any other outlet. It wasn't chest-beady. It wasn't guilt-tripping you. It wasn't talking about being your brother's keeper. It was talking about the selfish benefits of getting vaccinated so that you could have more fun being single. And um, and the idea landed in culture, you know, to the tune of seven billion media impressions and was covered by pretty much every news, music or culture outlet in the Western world. And so how do you give an impression like when you're going and presenting that to a prospective client? What was the outlay to impression multiple of something like that? Like in terms of saying your multiplicative bang for the buck, we took an idea, we skunk worked it and then it went super viral. Yeah, there's you know, there's no. Um, scientific equation to viral campaigns, although some agencies will attempt to sell you that. Uh, it, it simply doesn't exist. And so this is where, you know, with all due respect to chat GPS and AI, this is where the human element comes in. And this is where creativity on the agency side partnered with trust on the client, client side can have this, this resonant, this powerful reverberating response in culture. And so we present our ideas First and foremost, as the headline that we expect to read on NPR or in Hypebeast or in the Wall Street Journal or wherever the case may be, we write our, we write our ideas as we expect them to show up in culture. And if they don't read like an onion headline or if they don't read like brand makes advertise, you know, makes TV commercial. If you actually <laughs> as a client can say, yeah, I, I can imagine reading that on CNN or, or, or in the USA Today or, or you know, on Complex. You know, if you can start to if you can start to picture it, then you're probably on to something. And so that is, you know, that's a big part of our methodology. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all podcatchers, of course, including and especially Apple Podcasts, the link 
please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. We are on all the socials at handle fulldradio, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I believe I'm still on Friendster or MySpace if you want to look it up. And of course, you can catch us on NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ. Shout out to our listeners across the great Commonwealth and beyond. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Omid Farhang. He's founder and CEO. You know what? Omid Farhang, I'm going to give a non-traditional title, a renegade of funk, who is founder and CEO of Majority Agency. This is Ad Week's Breakthrough Agency of the Year. He was named Ad Age Newcomer Agency of the Year. You're a veteran of what could be, I guess, discussed traditional Madison Avenue circles, but you meandered in and out of, I guess, artist representation and the, the blurred line between kind of content and advertising. Talk to me about that specifically. You know, there is an intersection somewhere, I guess, at your prior act at uh, Momentum Worldwide, where you were chief creative officer. You worked on some earned media impressions, or was it some uh, sponsored content? What What is the terminology exactly? I know I sound like an old man. Uh, it's quite all right. At Momentum, you know, a lot of what we did was actually founded upon um, sponsorship. So for example, a client like American Express has a sponsorship with US Open Tennis, US Open Golf, the NBA. And traditionally in sponsorship, what you're paying for is the right to pepper your logo in and around arenas. And as we think about peppering logos, and we see that, and you see a giant logo in Times Square, you know, really all you're communicating is that your brand is successful enough to afford advertising. That's a message, but it's not a particularly you know, powerful or or resonant message. And so, you know, kind of going a layer deeper into creating more intimate relationships with customers, consumers, fans, for a brand like American Express or Verizon or Coca-Cola having a sponsorship with the NBA, the question for us in my previous job would be, how do we bring this sponsorship to life in a way that benefits the brand, that benefits the league or team, and that benefits the fan all equally? And, um, you know, like a lot of advertising people, I too aspire to make things that feel more in the world of entertainment than the world of advertising. You may not know this, Robin, right. but, but most advertising people are are just sort of failed um, failed screen uh, uh, you know uh, f- film writers and television showrunners, <laughs> and um, everybody wants to be something that they're not, and, and our industry is no exception. But you know, for the few lucky of us, we've been able to find a niche within advertising, specifically in branded content and branded entertainment where we're making things that feel, you know, more closely paralleled to the types of content that we love to watch and, you know, that inspire us and that get us and got us into a creative profession in the first place, whether it's now Omid, it must, it must be a seriously delicate balancing act. I'm dating myself again, but 10 years ago, there was a YouTube series on the forthcoming Daft Punk album random access memories that vice creators project had a series called collaborators which had various different uh artistic collaborators on this album with daft punk everybody from um you know pharrell williams to chili gonzalez to uh paul williams giorgio maroder and i remember seeing that it was you know i i saw it on youtube it got a tremendous amount of hype it was kind of the backstory of every song and I didn't feel marketed to. I felt like I could send this around, that it was actual media for media's sake, even though a kind of a, a content brand shop was behind this. And I think that's the very delicate courtship that you have. If you're, you want to be known as a curator or an ally of the brand or 
uh, I don't know, a docent or something, but not somebody hitting you over the head with a message by this. Yeah, whether it's branded entertainment or some type of brand act or program, I mean, the best advertising doesn't feel like advertising. I cited Vax That Thing Up. People didn't share that and the press didn't write about it because everybody's eager to talk about advertising. Um, they wrote about it and, and shared it because it was funny and it was provocative and it was undeniable. As you think about, um, you know, your example of Daft Punk, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better. At my first agency, we were part of creating, uh, what is known today for American Express as Small Business Saturday. And there, our agency was one of many fathers to that idea. But you think about the power of advertising agencies to create a program that has lasted, you know, 15 years, that has been this champion for small businesses, that has actually designated and created a day out of the year that belongs to small businesses, that drives millions in revenues, um, and that changes our relationship to small business at a time when it feels like being a small business owner in the shadow of Walmart, Target, and Amazon is damn near impossible. Tell me about your interaction the first time you met Shaquille O'Neal, who also has his name on your shop. A tremendous amount of press. It's a, it's, a, it's a rocket to ride. I mean, this is a person who helped salvage, for example, Papa John's goodwill when the founder was ousted. People were thinking about renaming it Papa Shaq. I've seen him in all sorts of ads for everything from insurance to Icy Hot. He's like the infinitely scalable Shaquille O'Neal to say nothing of the NBA Hall of Famer who I would watch with my beloved Lakers back in the day. Well, we share a love of the Lakers. And the day Shaquille O'Neal went from the Magic to the Lakers, I was 17 years old. And I wept that day, Robin. And I'm not afraid to admit that. So sometimes I, I try to think about 42-year-old me explaining to 17-year-old me what happened. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it actually, as I was formulating the company, I started by seeking partnership and, and investment from various outlets, holding companies and other agencies. And I was realizing, well, that wasn't quite right. And even talking to some of my 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 most respected founders at other agencies, they said, you, you've got a real idea here uh, and you're going to get you're going to take it to a holding company and they're going to they're going to strip it of everything that makes it special and cool. Um, so I, I realized, you know, maybe rather than a holding company, what I was looking for was some type of meaningful celebrity affiliation. My brother is a director in advertising. He directs a lot of commercials for Shaq over the last 10 years, most recently for Papa John's. Um, so Shaq has this great relationship with my brother. Um, I've worked with him when he was a spokesperson for American Express in a, in a previous job. And so when I brought the idea to Shaquille, I, I said two things. One was everything that I've said to you about representation in our industry, about using diversity as a competitive advantage to create more ideas that land in culture. And the second thing I said to him was what I am not aspiring to do is create the Shaquille O'Neal spokesperson agency, which was code for I'm not here to, you have a very healthy business with many brands. You defy everything we thought we knew about spokespersonship. And I'm not here to screw with that. We're not here to trade on your reputation to undermine other great agencies who you work with and tamper with other great brands with, with whom you partner. We really want to have our own clients stand on our own two feet. And um, so Shaq really aligned with everything that we were doing. It was like any relationship. It was about timing where he and his manager explained that you know, they're interested in marketing and this was a way they had discussed expanding their portfolio in the marketing space by investing in a partner who they felt like they could trust. And, you know, luckily for me, I sort of showed up at the right time. And boy, he sure helped because, you know, to have the headline Shaquille O'Neal invest in a company is so much more interesting and such a, such a more powerful way to uh, turn the on switch on and attract the 
attention of clients than a headline that says, man dislikes boss starts new company. That's just not as interesting. <laughs> Did you have to go fundraising with a PowerPoint deck and a pitch book? Yeah. I mean, I will tell you one of the unintended benefits for me of attempting to start a company during COVID was where previously you would travel all over the country seeking investment, seeking partnership, you know, doing presentations. All of a sudden in COVID, everybody was home and all it really took to talk to pretty much anybody was one credible person to vouch for you. And so I found myself sharing my concept with names that I wouldn't have dreamt possible about what I was doing, gauging interest, and, and, and Shaq was, ended up being the right partner to, to partner with. But um, there was actually this incredible saving, savings of time and money by virtue of everyone being home and being sort of willing to listen to uh, what was presented to them as an interesting idea. It's kind of like batch processing where people were willing to, it was well before Zoom fatigue and we were lonely and we were isolated and you saw opportunity in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the idea had been uh, percolating for me before COVID happened. It was really more an observation having moved to Atlanta five years ago and looking around and saying, here I am in this city where black and brown talent is fueling global pop culture. And then you go to the agencies in Atlanta and it feels a little bit like a good old boys club in a city that's mm. far from a good old boy city. And so for me, again, I, I did not have an ambition ever of starting a company, but I saw it the way I see any sort of creative idea that I get I get fixated on, which is this feels incredibly obvious in hindsight. Why doesn't this exist? We're supposed to have this diversity problem in advertising. And here I am in one of the most diverse cities in America. This is a chance to create something that, you know, we like to say our ambition is to be to Atlanta what Wyden Kennedy is to Portland what the Martin agency is to Virginia, what Crispin Porter once was to Miami and, and now, you know, gut is to Miami. Like, and the idea is not to be the next them, but it's to, it's to harness the differentiated and kinetic power of what's in our own backyard to be the first ever us. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Omid Farhang. He is founder and CEO of Majority Agency. This is Adweek's Breakthrough Agency of the Year, AdAge's Newcomer Agency of the Year. I've called you a renegade of funk. I, I guess I can call you an iconoclast. I mean, it seems like LinkedIn profiles like yours defy uh, description. You could say advertising industry person, but what is the advertising industry right now? A lot of it is branded content, sponsored content, straight up media production and, and journalism. It seems like you have to be a jack of 50 trades. Yeah, I mean, I think what's helpful about being in the industry for a long time and having partners who've done the same and and when we meet with clients for the first time is, you know, over the course of a career, if you're lucky enough, you're going to have your opportunity to create traditional campaigns, social campaigns, branded content, live events and experiential point of sale campaigns. And so what that means for us is that we don't have to show up to our clients with a media agenda. We can start with what is the big idea that the press is going to write about, that people are going to talk about, that people are going to share. And then we can reverse engineer the right media to serve the idea versus, you know, you asked about traditional advertising and a, and a kind of a previous era. And one of the hallmarks of that previous era was you buy the media first, 
and then the creative exists to essentially fill the order. It is it is uh, it is a simple but powerful competitive advantage when clients allow you to start with the idea and then and then figure out the media that serves that that concept best. Well, I mean, talk to me about influencer marketing. I know this gets thrown around a lot and there's been a backlash to the backlash to the backlash, but it's undeniably huge. If a Kylie Jenner can brandish something on her Insta or TikTok, if I, you know, even especially during the pandemic, there were people doing impersonations, comedians, comics I discovered on Instagram and Twitter and everything who've then parlayed that into bigger things you know, Tonight Show appearances, appearances on mainstream linear TV, and actually made names for themselves. They graduated into doing voiceovers for campaigns, and some of them are actually touring comedy clubs right now. It's a tremendous era of agency, and I'm not saying agency from the agency of record perspective, but agency from the celeb or influencer's perspective to be able to take that cred and people opting in and following you and, and using that to build a franchise unto yourself. Listen, we're um, we're a few weeks out from the Super Bowl, and I think with each passing year, you see a higher percentage of Super Bowl ads that lean on celebrity, and they do it because it works. So as you ask about influencers, obviously they come in many forms, from the TikTok viral dance creator to the biggest A-list celebrity who, you know, Larry David last year, for example, who appears in the Super Bowl, and just the novelty of seeing them where they're not supposed to be has this incredible effect. I think no matter sort of how you slice it, you know, it's about breaking through. It's about connecting with people in a way that feels, you know, unexpected. We live in a, obviously a celebrity obsessed culture. And so when the celebrities we love shill for products that we either know about or don't know about, it at least cuts through the thing that is damn near impossible to cut through in advertising, which is this cynicism and this rejection, this rejection of most advertising as we're bombarded with this constant deluge of messages that we're trying to avoid as we move through our day-to-day lives, the power of an influencer who we trust or a celebrity who we admire makes us sort of look at a message with a little bit more open-mindedness. And once that door is open, it is then incumbent on the actual quality of the creative to sort of kick that door open. But here's the deal. You know, Miami, if I see a Kim Kardashian walk into a club, how do I know she's not getting paid $90,000 for that appearance versus she organically, with her entourage, really wanted to walk into that place? Again, I sound like an old Persian uncle because I'm of a Gen X variety and I know I'm dating myself. I should mention the compact disc and DVD, but this is where I don't quite understand it. I mean, I could be listening to a podcast. It's a very intimate relationship that I have that I I listen to quite a bit. And if that person really makes a parenthetical aside and said, look, this product really helped me with my child's colicky behavior, I reached out to the company because it meant that much to me. And I would like to convey that to you. That's one thing. But if I'm suspecting that somebody was bought and their cred was bought, I'm just going to be twice as suspicious. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. But I guess my answer to you is is um, whether she's paid to walk in or not, who cares? And I say who cares as a reflection of we need to give audiences more credit. So in the Mad Men era that we were discussing earlier, you know, I think the way that it used to work in advertising was the advertising agency, the brand was a magician and the audience was watching to see the magician pull a rabbit out of the hat and be dazzled by the trick. I think today, you know, the audience is way more sophisticated. They've been exposed to way more marketing messages. And as a result, great brands don't just pull the rabbit out of the hat. Now we say, now it's like, it's almost like a magician performing for an audience of amateur magicians, you know? And so it's, 
I'm going to pull the rabbit out of a hat. I'm going to do it in this other interesting or novel way. I actually want to show you how I did it. And here is the little trap door where it all happened. And so um, there is a heightened intimacy when we treat our audiences with greater respect. And and so I, for those who love Kim Kardashian, I don't think they really care whether or not she's getting paid to walk into a thing or post a thing. I think they love her so much that they can sort of take in all of those inputs, the how much was she paid for this? How much does she really love this product? What was her upside in this? Is she really passionate about this? They can kind of do that math for themselves and decide how it'll hit them. How are you guys handling name image likeness, especially now that you're in Atlanta? And I saw someone recently on Twitter drew a circle around, I think, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, that schools within this circle have won something like 16 out of the last 17 football national championships. Clearly, Georgia won it now. And it's a whole different calculation if you're recruiting a star high schooler, they're negotiating in terms of uh, brand sponsorships. And what am I getting in terms of my IP and name image likeness? Can you unpack that for me? I just think we we haven't even skimmed the surface of NIL as it relates to cr- at, at least the creative side of marketing. You know, we were previously talking about subservient chicken. And here was one execution that essentially opened an industry's eyes to the power of interactive marketing where previously all marketing had essentially been a window, all of a sudden now marketing was a door. And so now I think, you know, you're seeing NIL happen on a local level and it's it's a wonderful thing for athletes to get paid, certainly at the college level that s- since the beginning of time was um, you know, profiting off the backs of unpaid labor to the tune of billions. You'd like to see them actually right. pay the athletes themselves rather than um pass that responsibility on to to brands, but on a very small and local scale, you're seeing athletes start to get compensated for their talent um, and, and be exploited less. You see brands like Gatorade start to work collegiate athletes into their ads. But I think just like we saw with Subservient Chicken, we will see a brand do something innovative with NIL and it will be a point of no return where we say like, oh man, now they are tapping into something using the power of creativity and, and there's no going back from this. So I got to ask you, how does your partner Shaquille O'Neal help you from a kind of a scouting perspective? I remember when I was in high school, people were whispering about this LSU kid, Shaquille O'Neal. I was like, what, an Irishman? Really is going to be the next big thing in the NBA? Like, no, watch it, Shaquille O'Neal, right? And now it just he's omnipresent. He's universally recognized. But are you guys targeting that? Are you allowed to talk about maybe some of your – is that part of the business, NCAA? That's not really what a starting point would look like for us. It's more like, you know, we get with a brand and we sort of assess where there may be opportunity. And if it is NCAA, then great. And that is actually a thing. But that- suppose it's not the brand. Suppose it's the talent. Suppose there's an emerging iconoclastic figure with an incredible bio that you think this person is long for the world. Like I've seen those NBA ads with Boban Marjanovic. Yeah, uh, you know, doing all state ads, or he's been in a John Wick movie as an assassin. I mean, you never realize the depth to these people. Like, like as you, as when I was watching Shaquille at LSU or at high school, that this guy would have decades and decades of of kind of brand value. Well, and you know what you have to realize now is you know whether it's Zion Williamson or or Bijan Robinson, the running back at Texas, to be a great college athlete Time means that college. you're not spending a lot. Even Shaquille O'Neal played oh. played you know. He played his two years, but you're right. It felt like it had, uh, it 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 felt like it changed the college landscape more than the modern college athlete does. So, to answer your question, we absolutely are interested in that space. We feel like it's untapped. We feel like 
you know, like subservient chicken, like the, um, the, the vice idea that you said, it's like, once you do it, then you see the greatest form of, uh, of flattery is imitation. And you see hundreds of brands start to emulate this way of working with an athlete to convey a brand message that we haven't seen before. As far as the Shaquille O'Neal side of it, I will just tell you that he attached his name and reputation to, to, the, to the agency in a way that was incredibly beneficial and a gift to us. When we speak to news outlets or reporters, you know, I think there's a story in their head that it's Shaquille as the black Ryan Reynolds. And the truth of it is that, that, uh, with all that he's got going on, you know, the gift that Shaquille gave us was his reputation. And, and we honor that gift by creating a successful agency that as the press writes about us, his name drops, you know, one paragraph, uh, lower with each article that is written about us. That's how we, that's how we thank him. Omid Farhang, in the five minutes or so I have left with you, talk to me about AI chatbot gpt which everybody is talking about it's gonna apparently put people out of work copywriters are quivering in their boots that you could go in and put in some inputs i'm sure you've been getting tons of of slack messages about this this month we've already begun to use it and as you start to write headlines for a brand or write body copy for a brand it never comes out perfect but boy that's that's really not the bar and and what you do get is you get this this output that gives you a much further along starting point from which to kind of hone and craft what it is you want to do. So it's an incredible tool. We we embrace it. It feels like it's this for, force multiplier for writers who do embrace it. I think, again, our industry loves to talk a good game about change until that change looks us in the mirror and threatens our jobs. And then all of a sudden we become traditionalists. So I think the best marketers embrace the change. For us, I don't think we have a doom and gloom outlook that um, that AI is going to replace the power of human creativity and ingenuity anytime soon. We embrace the tool as an efficient way to, um, you know, to to explore concepts and to write our copy. I will also tell you on the visual side, we've heavily uh, embraced AI to create our visual comps for our decks. And what used to take days and art directors and photoshopping all night. Now it might take a matter of hours or a matter of minutes and feel like it's ready for prime time. So, so I don't get it. You could say like, tell me like Larry David talking skeptically to Thomas Edison in the year 1902, and it will it will thumbnail that for you. That is exactly what it will do. So an image will come up. Variations of that image will come up. Some will make a lot of sense. Some will make no sense at all. Based on the out, on the output that comes out, you may change your inputs. You may alter your inputs to sort of see how that see how that affects the output, but yes, uh, at a very high quality, um, you could essentially create any visual scenario, any celebrity, any absurdity, and so you know I do think that there are major implications for that as it related to the art departments and studios at traditional agencies that would work all night and, um, you know, that would embrace this notion of craft. And all of a sudden, you know, the, with the, for the art directors and the designers who are, who are really embracing AI, it, it feels like it's their vision. And then the AI is essentially their studio. But taken to the nth degree, could it conceivably disrupt Google? I mean, Google and Facebook seem to have this advertising duopoly right now, which kind of slurped all the milkshake out of you know, Madison Avenue and the, the magazines and the newspapers and TV stations of the world. If you take it to its max extreme, are we going to not Google as much and we're going to say, why don't you just chat it? 
I think what's true of humans is true of the largest tech companies in the world, which is that ask any human at any point in history going back to BC, and we always feel like we're at the height of civilization and humanity. And it, it takes time to look back and realize that we were in the, we're, we're constantly in the middle of an evolution. We're actually not the butterfly. We're still the, the larva. And what's true of humans, I believe, is true of the companies that you cite. And so I, I don't think Google is worried about whether people are going to continue to search. I think Google's probably going to lead the way as it relates to AI in the same way that, you know, Apple was once in the music player business. And we might have scoffed at the notion of Apple as a phone company first and foremost. So I think they're always a step ahead in, in adapting their offering to serve us what we need. I, my prediction is going to be that the Googles of the world are probably going to lead the way as it relates to AI. And, and what we think about their core offering might look quite a bit different, not 20 years from now, maybe three years from now than it does today as it relates to search. You were listening to Omid Farhang, founder and CEO of Majority Agency Adweek's Breakthrough Agency of the Year. It's also an ad age newcomer agency of the year. I've called him in this episode alone, a renegade of funk, an iconoclast. And now with that that final comment of yours, I can also label you a futurist, sir, as well as a friend of full disclosure. Thank you so much for coming on. And I sure hope you come back on. As our people would say, Robin, Khaili <laughs> Mamnoon. Merci, merci. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We are on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. And follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. Catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. And a shout-out, of course, to my listeners on NPR member station WVTF, Radio IQ News. Message me to carry this program on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>